First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Today, um, to be able to, to share, just wanted to just tell you why I'm here this morning. Um, as many of you may have seen on Facebook, uh, Mark Bethany passed away this week. Uh, that's Pastor Scott's uh, father-in-law. Um, it was on Wednesday, and if you knew Mark, um, I can just picture that smile on his face, that little cheeky grin um, that he always had, and um, just thankful for the hope we have in Christ of a life beyond this life, but this time just praying for, for Scott and Megan, for Angie, for, for Josh, for Olivia, for Marshall, all, the, the, whole, the whole family, and so what I want to do is just uh, lead us in prayer uh, this morning for them. God, we just thank you for today. God, we thank you so much for loving us, for being kind to us. God, for, um, God for, the, for the life that we anticipate after this life because of what you did on the cross, because you died for us, you were buried, and you rose again on the third day. We just thank you that, that Mark is now at your, at your, God is just with you in your presence. And we just thank you for the life that he had here. We just pray that you just bring comfort and peace to their family. And God, also in, in, in this room, for those who have experienced loss recently, comfort and peace and, and hope um, that you provide through that. Just be with us as we learn from your word, as we dig into what, you, what, your, what the, the Bible says to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I love graduation Sunday. It's always a special Sunday, and I was just thinking about it this morning as I was sitting there, that I graduated 20 years ago. I was the class of 2001 which meant that when I was graduating, these kids weren't even born yet, which makes me feel awesome. And let me tell you how long ago that was. Doug still had a mullet. That was a long, <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> I think I've made it my goal every time I get up here, which isn't often, is to just give, give a little shade to him. So I love you, Doug. Um, uh, but this morning, speaking of school, uh, Bethany and I, uh, my wife up here, we are homeschoolers. And so now that I've said that, an image immediately pops into your mind, and I know it's positive, so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, but when we think about homeschooling, when you think about what that entails, one thing that you don't think about is it, it can be kind of lonely sometimes. A lot of times it's just you and the kids, and you and the kids, and, and maybe not a lot of other people, and you're, you can kind of feel isolated. Can you really do this? This is so hard. All these things, and we've gone through these thoughts so many times, but I remember We've been to a couple uh, homeschool conferences, and I remember one was at the Gaylord Palms, and it was huge. I mean, there were just homeschoolers everywhere. There's an exhibit hall, and all these people just trying to help you do uh, what we believed God was calling us to do. And I just remember, I, I, it's, it's so overwhelming because there's so much, but at the same time, it's overwhelming, but it's like suddenly possible. Like, okay, we could actually do this. We could do this. And so it's kind of a weird kind of mix of emotions, but, but it felt good. And I just remember at one point, uh, and Bethany said this, she was looking around, seeing other people doing the same thing, and she's like, these are my people. She said, these are my people. And maybe you've had that experience, maybe not with homeschooling, maybe with something else, maybe with it's a club that you're in or a sports team. You look around, and you're like, these are my people. Hopefully you felt that when you came back to church after we were gone for so long, that the, this, these are my people. It's such a powerful thing um, to just think about that when you find your people. And today, we're going to talk about God's people. When God says, these are my people, who is he talking about? Who are they? 
And in today's passage, we're in Acts chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 22, and we're going to walk through it together. Paul has just left Athens and heads to a new city to share the gospel, and his past experiences in Athens come into play as he sets out to preach. In verses 9 and 10, if there's a section to just underline in this, it's these two verses. There's this kind of like a central theme of the text. I want to just read those real quick. We'll dig, we'll dig into it a little bit later, but in verse 9 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city." God comforts Paul with three things. Do not be afraid. I am with you. And I have people in this city. What I want you to hear today is don't be afraid for God is with you and you can trust in his provision. As God's people, we can embody these things. They can be defining characteristics of who we are regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, but we are often known for embodying something different. That last phrase is interesting. I have people in this city, and when God says, these are my people, who are they? And today we're going to see some characteristics of God's people that are all rooted in the character of God himself. The first thing that we see is God's people are, are tent makers. Read with me verses 1 through 4. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers." And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So after receiving mixed results in Athens, Paul left and continued to share the gospel in another place. And this first stop after Athens was was Corinth, which is about 50 miles due west of Athens. Corinth ended up being Paul's last long-term missionary stop on this second journey. And from here, later in this chapter, we're going to read that he heads back to Jerusalem. So what was Corinth like? This is actually a city my wife and I have been to, and it's, it's, it's small, but there's a beautiful mountain, and um, we've seen a lot of the things there. It was a very important town. Commentator John Paul Hill says that Corinth was the Greek center for east-west trade. With it came some undesirable elements. Among the Greeks, the word translated to live like a Corinthian meant to live immorally. It was the Greek equivalent of what we think of Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Um, Paul had just left a city proud for its knowledge and intellectual heritage and now moves to another city proud of its economy and its debaucherous lifestyle. Paul had left Athens in need of encouragement. While he was bold and proclaimed the gospel, he had been mocked for teaching. He had been mocked for specifically teaching the resurrection. He was called a seed picker. Now, I've never been called a seed picker, and probably you haven't either, unless you run in some weird circles, but this idea of seed picker is a hayseed. It's a backwoods country bumpkin. It's an uneducated redneck who doesn't know anything in a city that values intelligence. No one likes to be talked to that way. No one, much less Paul. 
And so, how, but how, so, so that is true, but how do we really know that Paul was discouraged? We read about it. He writes a letter to this Corinthian church after his time there. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 3, he says this. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you from Athens, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A different strategy. And this is his heart. This is what he was carrying with him into the city. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. He had just come from a place that valued speech, eloquence, wisdom, and was mocked and ridiculed for what he said. His tone as he approached Corinth was one who needed encouragement, and God provided it. Don't be afraid. God is with you, and you can trust his provision. And his provision was a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And God's provision is all over this encounter. First off, Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. Claudius commanded all Jews to leave Rome because they were, they were spreading all this stuff, this allegiance to someone other than Caesar's. He just wanted them out of the city. So they end up settling in Corinth. And what's interesting is Priscilla and Aquila are believers before they met Paul. And as far as we know, there's no record of Paul doing any missionary journey to Rome or Italy. There's no record of the church going there. So how did the gospel get there? How did it happen? Ordinary Christians being dispersed from where they are carried the gospel with them everywhere they went. They picked up and moved and brought their, their house, their stuff, their job, but they brought the gospel with them. And the gospel ends up when you bring the gospel, it ends up getting planted and rooted in places you never expect. And that's what happened with Priscilla and Aquila. This couple also had the same vocation as Paul. That's, a, that's, that's providential. They were, tent, they were literal tent makers. And this allowed Paul to not only have friends in the city that would encourage him, but a vocation to help support him and let him meet his needs of living in the city. And it, there's no doubt that because he was, had this vocation, he was able to stay in this city long, a long time. We read later that it was a year and a half he was here. But because of this, Paul was only able to share in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's the, that's the implication of verse 4 is that when the Sabbath came, when he had a day of rest from his work, he would go into the synagogue and share. And then the rest of the days of the week, he's working, right? Paul, this brilliant missionary, he is working, making tents. And some might think that's settling, but that's exactly what God had for him. So, but what is a tent maker? I mean, we're not, I mean, here it's literally making tents, but when we talk about tent making, I'm not, we're not talking about literally making tents, unless you guys are great leather workers and that's what you want to do, then praise God for that. But we're talking about tent making as using your vocation, whatever it is, strategically as a platform to do two things, live the Christian life and to share the gospel with those you encounter. So whatever your vocation is, using that to live the Christian life and share the gospel. So Paul's strategy to reach cities was to go to the synagogue and preach. But what we see here before that is that Paul employs this strategy of tent making first, and then he goes to the synagogue. So what exactly did tent making give Paul? What, what, was, what did the strategy do for Paul? The first thing it said is that it gave him more time. 
What's going on here is Paul finds other believers in the city and uh, is able to find work so he can stay there a long time. This is the longest place he stayed in any of his missionary journeys, uh, on his second missionary journey. He stayed in this city longer than anywhere else, and that's probably because he was able to have um, an income. The second thing it gave Paul was encouragement. This probably was a good season of relief considering what he just came from. And even before that, he was able to focus on something else while still doing the gospel ministry. He was leaving a very difficult ministry season, and maybe this tent making, he was probably good at it. He probably enjoyed doing it. I know as a pastor sometimes, just, to, just the ability to just work with your hands and make something was fun. I was in North Carolina, and right behind the church, there was like this big ditch, and behind it, there's a neighborhood. And so one of the days, the pastor came into my office. He said, hey, we're going to build a bridge to the community. I'm like, yeah, I love it. What are we going to do? What kind of program? He's like, no, 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 we're literally going to build a bridge. To the I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, we're going to build a bridge. We need people to be able to come from the church and come in, so we're going to build a bridge. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I didn't learn that in seminary, so let's, uh, let's build a bridge. And it was an adequate bridge. It was average. I think it's still there. Um, last time I checked, it was there, but there was something so satisfying about that. As we were just grinding away in ministry, just the, just the ability to just stop, build something that we know is going to serve the community behind us, to go talk to them about it, hey, we've got a way for you guys to come in, and it was simple. There's something so satisfying about that. It was a nice, what we did that day was a nice break, and we loved it, and it was great, and I think Paul might have needed that encouragement. The third thing tent making gave Paul was integrity. And this is really important. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about this. And he's, there, there were some people um, in Corinth that were going around selling their religion, selling the gospel to try to make a living. They were praying off of people who needed hope and cashing in on that hope to live lavish lifestyles. And people started saying, oh, Paul is just one of those guys. And Paul could point to this time as tent making and said, that ain't me. I didn't come here like that. I came here when I could have asked for help, when I could have asked you to do this stuff, and I worked, and I worked hard, and I supported myself and supported you guys. I wasn't out for the money. I'm here for you guys. That's why I was here. So it gave him an integrity in his ministry that set him apart from a lot of other people in that community. God's people are tent makers. Don't be afraid. God is with you and you can trust his provision. When God says, these are my people, who are they? The first thing we just saw is God's people are tent makers using their vocation for ministry. Next, we're going to see that God's people are bold. Let's read with me in verse 5 through 11. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped the worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city." And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 
So one of the first things that we see here is we see Silas and Timothy coming back, which emboldened Paul, and emboldened him in a few ways, but as Paul escaped Berea to go to Athens, the coast was clear, uh, he was running from people, and he left Silas and Timothy, he didn't have them come with him immediately until, the thing, until things settled down, until there wasn't an angry mob trying to hunt him down. But as, as he departed Athens, he sent Silas and Timothy back to Macedonia, probably Philippi and the church there. And in verse 5, we see that they come back. And this return uh, brings several things. It brings friendship and partnership and ministry. He needed some, some people to do this ministry with, and they were his traveling partners. And in 2 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, we learn that it brought a generous love offering from the church in Macedonia. So Silas and Timothy bring means for Paul, and now Paul is not only emboldened to share the gospel, he's able to do it much more regularly. The generosity from this church led to Paul being bold. If you get that, in verse 5, it says, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. This is after Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, after they had brought this gift, and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. In verse, uh, verse 5, it says it also changed the way he did ministry, too. In the New American Standard Version, it says, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. So this idea of devoting himself completely to the Word is he stopped his tent making and he leaned into ministry. He entered Corinth with fear and trembling, but now continued in the strength and boldness of the Lord. Another thing that we see this boldness is crazy. He's in there, he's preaching to him, and he's, it says he shakes off, shakes the dust off his cloak and said, I'm done with you guys. You guys are going to blaspheme, you're not going to believe. I'm done talking to you. I'm going to go talk to somebody else who will listen. Your blood be on your own head. And when he said that phrase, your blood be on your own head, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about a story in Ezekiel 33 about the watchman and the whole story about this. And you can read it later. It's, a, it's an incredible story. It's the job of the watchman. The job of the watchman is to stay in the tower and watch for the armies that were coming in. And if they saw the army coming in by cover of night, they were supposed to alert the city so that the city could get ready and defend itself and be ready. So they're not just, you know, it's just like you don't want somebody to, you don't want to have to, to fight in your bathrobe, right? You want to fight with your armor and everything ready. So the watchman was alerting the city to get them ready. Now the watchman could either do his job, and if he did his job and the city was still taken over, that's not on the watchman. He did his job. His job was not to come down and fight off the army. His job was to let people know that it was coming. But the watchman, if the watchman is sleeping, or if the watchman is lazy and not doing their job, and the city is slaughtered, what it says in Ezekiel is the blood of the people in the city are on his head. And what Paul is saying is, I have done my job. I have told you the gospel, and you have chosen to blaspheme. You have chosen to reject it. Your blood is not on my head. I have done what I was supposed to do, so now I'm going to go to somebody else. That's incredible boldness. I mean, Paul, this is another kind of boldness. He leaves the synagogue, and what does he do? He goes to the guy's house right next door to the synagogue and says, we're going to start a church right here, right? I mean, he's not like, let's go on the other side of town so there's no, you know, no hard feelings. He's like, no, 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 let's go right next door. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's turn up the music on the sound system to 11. Everybody can hear it. It's going to be great. And not only, I mean, his witness, his boldness, he, he is able to reach with the gospel the, the ruler of the synagogue, 
who now comes, <laughs> he goes, instead of going to work to the synagogue, he just goes next door, right? It's amazing, this boldness that Paul has. But let's talk about this tent making for a second. So now he's devoted to this. It doesn't mean what Paul's doing is better than what he was doing before. It's just different. It's just different. It's not better. Being a pastor is not better than being a plumber. They're just different. And how do I know that's true? Is it just my opinion? No, the, the Scripture, it makes it very clear. Priscilla and Aquila are very important in this story, and we're going to talk about them next week and how important they are. Priscilla and Aquila were Christians with a tent-making business. And wherever they went, as they were moving around, they brought the gospel with them, and the gospel moved out. Now, their job was to make tents, but as they did that with excellence, they shared the gospel with them. They took their business and, and, and brought the gospel with them wherever they went. Paul's on a missionary journey. Of course he's bringing the gospel. That's his job. That's, that's what he's doing. He was forced to move because of persecution and shared. And he, but, but he put that aside for a season to be a tent maker and then return to preach the gospel. They're just different callings. But we, it's, like, it's, it's like a railroad track. You need both things running side by side. Actually, the job of the pastor is to equip those who are seeing people every day for the work of ministry. That's our job. You guys are doing the heavy lifting. Week in, week out, day in, day out. Now think about, I want us to put us in the mind of Paul for a second. As Paul began preaching the word, I'm sure some worrisome thought. I mean, he's being bold. I mean, Paul, Paul is bold. He's being bold in his speech. He's being bold in his actions. And every time on this journey that Paul had some success in ministry, what happened? What happened? A mob ran up. They tried to get him out of town. And they, he was running for his life. Every single time. He, he was stoned and dragged outside of the city because they thought he was dead. So success in ministry brought hardship for Paul. And if you think about Paul, he came dejected. He's winning people to Jesus. In the back of his mind, he's got to be thinking, man, what if this happens again? What if they come after me again? I've been running. It seems like all my life. I can't take another beating. I can't take any more mocking. And in that very moment, when he might have been thinking that, God speaks to Paul and comforts him. He says, don't be afraid. Speak. Do not keep silent. I am with you. No one will attack you or hurt you. I have many people in this city. And in the book of Acts, at these crucial moments in the church, we see God showing up and encouraging his people the same way. Acts 5, the high priest had the apostles locked up. God shows up, releases them from prison, and they move on. When Saul goes blind, God spoke to Ananias and said, go and see this man. And he discipled and trained up Paul and shared the gospel with him in this crucial moment. In this crucial moment, whether the Jews are going to actually go to the Gentiles, is Peter going to lead the way in that? God gives Peter a vision and a dream to go and do that very thing. And Cornelius shows up after that. In Acts 16, Paul had a vision to go to Macedonia instead of Asia where he wanted to go. And that vision where God led him to Macedonia, not only led him to Corinth, but it started a church that supported his ministry in Corinth. At these critical moments when we're not sure what to do or we don't know what to do, that's right where God is. That's where he speaks. 
I can't imagine how many of those moments you might have had this year, wondering about future, about family. But in those moments is where God steps up, and he steps up to allow us to be bold. And, and, and I mean, how bold is this? When God says this phrase, I have many people in this city. That's <laughs> such a fascinating thing. He's referring to people in the city who have not been saved yet, and he calls them his people. God is so in control of the situation. He knows that Paul's going to preach. He knows that as he preaches the gospel, those people are going to get saved. I. Howard Marshall says this. He said, this saying indicates divine foreknowledge of the success of the gospel in Corinth. And Paul, knowing the end of the story, continues in boldness for a year and a half. God's people are bold. Do not be afraid. God is with you, and you can trust his provision. When God says, these are my people, who are they? We first saw that God's people are tent makers. We saw that God's people are bold, and now we'll see that God's people trust him. This is a big moment for Paul. Verse 12, let's read verse 12 through 17. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters." And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice over these things. Gallio, you're like, oh, man, Gallio saved Paul. It's great. Gallio's not really, he's not really on Paul's side. He just doesn't care what's going on, right? He's like, Yeah, did he commit a crime? No. You guys are arguing theology. I'm not a theologian. I'm not going to school. You deal with this yourself. I don't want any part of this. He's just apathetic. He he just doesn't care. But even through an apathetic guy like Gallio, God works and spares Paul. It's amazing. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second, right? God had just promised him he was going to be with him to preach boldly. But he, he gave him a specific promise. He said, no one will attack you to hurt you. That's specific. Not, I will sustain you through the hardship. No, 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 it wasn't that. It was a promise that no one would attack him. And after that, as he's ministering, what happens? The mob comes, they knock on Paul's door, and they drag him out in front of the courtyard. If you're Paul, what are you thinking in that moment? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm not as good a man as Paul. I'd be like, God, are you serious? Seriously? You said, this, you said this very thing wasn't going to happen. And I've seen this story before. This whole journey was me running from beatings and stonings and people wanting to kill me. And you said this wasn't going to happen again. And it's almost as Paul was about to say something to defend himself, that this guy, Gallio, not a friend of Paul, not a champion of Paul, just a guy who didn't want to deal with it, God worked through him and got him off the hook. What did that do for Paul's faith? What did that do for Paul's trust? 
And he stayed there for a year and a half because he trusted God. God's people trust him. I want to talk about another person in this story. Let's talk about something else that happened. Let's talk about poor Sosthenes for a second. The mob didn't beat Paul, but they were going to beat somebody. Hurt people hurt other people, is the old adage, right? They were hurt that they didn't get their way against Paul. So what did they do? They found the next guy, and they beat the nonsense out of him. And some commentators say it was the 39 stripes, similar to what Jesus endured in his beatings and floggings. And poor Sosthenes didn't do Like, why, why Sosthenes? Why him? There are a lot of reasons about that. Maybe he didn't go after Paul as hard as he should have. Maybe he, maybe he had sympathies towards Paul because of what he's hearing. Well, a couple interesting things that we learn is in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's letter to this church, he names a man who he calls a fellow brother named Sosthenes. And we're not exactly sure it's the same guy, but all the indications from Scripture is this is the same guy that was leader of the synagogue and is now a brother with Paul. And I mean, it's not that much of a stretch because the last leader of the synagogue got saved in his whole household, and Paul was preaching there and proclaiming. And just think about, after Sosthenes suffers that, who is the one person in town who knows what he's gone through? Paul. Paul's whole life was that. Paul knew what it was like to be beaten. Paul knew what it was like to suffer for that. Who was the one person that would have reached out to him? It's amazing that what Paul went through, everything pointed this man to the Lord. And it's because Paul trusted in God because God is faithful. And I don't want to make this trite. It can be very hard to trust God sometimes. It just can be, right? I mean, I don't don't need to tell you that. You know that. Pastor Kent Hughes says it like this. He says, Many of us are professionals at borrowing trouble. We feel harassed as we wait for something disastrous and unpleasant about to happen. For some, it may be discouragement and fear about an uncertain future. For others, we are in encouraging times, but afraid that they will not last and hard times will return. Time and time the Bible tells us to fear not, to stop worrying about tomorrow, stop borrowing trouble because we are divinely loved and God's love is enough. How many of you in this room are borrowing trouble that wasn't yours to begin with? God's people trust him. Don't be afraid. God is with you and you can trust his provision. When God says, these are my people, who are they? We've seen God's people are tent makers. God's people are bold. God's people trust him. And finally, we'll see God's people are on the move. Acts 18, verse 18 through 22. So while Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Chentria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, probably the Passover. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And we had, he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church in Jerusalem. He, had, he went down to Antioch. So what we see here is God's people 
are on the move. After staying at Corinth for 18 months, it was time for Paul to head home. He had planted a church, raised up leaders, and accomplished, God had accomplished much through him. And it says in, in verse 18 that he had taken a vow. This was probably the Nazarite vow that we read about in number 6, and you can read about that later. Um, and this Nazarite vow is actually a really big deal that will come into play later in the book of Acts. So read on it now um, and be ready. But he says he, sta- he set sail for Syria. So he's going out west in the Mediterranean. But he had one stop to make. He stopped in Ephesus and left Priscilla and Aquila there. Priscilla and Aquila take their tent-making business. They leave Corinth and they're on move and they go to Ephesus. And th- what does Paul do? Paul does what Paul's going to do, right? He goes to He goes to the synagogue and starts preaching there. Priscilla and Aquila, we learn about what they do right next week. They meet a man named Apollos, and they're instrumental in discipling him. We're going to learn about that um, the very next week. But he had to proclaim that gospel in the synagogue. They asked him to stay. He declined. He had to to move on. He he had to go on. And he said, Lord willing, he would return. And in the very next chapter, we learn that his next journey, he ended up spending some time in Ephesus. Um, he, and, and the whole time on this, on this thing, he was going around encouraging the saints. He was sharing the gospel with those he, he, um, who he encountered. And he was encouraging those who had believed the gospel. He was going back to places and encouraging those people. He went to Antioch, the place that originally sent him out, and was just encouraging these people in the gospel. God's people were on the move. And you might be thinking to yourself, yes, okay, yeah, Paul is on the move, Right? I get Paul. Paul's a missionary. Paul is a church planner. He's a super Christian. He's on the A team. He's needed all these places. He planted all these churches. He's got to go these places. I'm not Paul. I'm an ordinary Christian. And all of that might be true, but don't miss. This, this is not just... The, the book of Acts is not about Paul. It's about the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of believers. And yes, it moved in Paul, but don't miss how it's moving in Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila... Are tent makers. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't walk forward at a missions conference. They are doing their job well for the glory of God, and they are being strategic in where they do that to try to reach people with the gospel. They're just a couple. There's so much I could, we could say about this couple, and I, I, I went over time last time, so I can't talk about Priscilla, but she's in, an incredible story there. This couple has moved twice. They moved from Rome. They moved to Corinth. Now they moved to Ephesus. They're tradespeople. But they're saying, we are going to use this trade to reach people with the gospel and to help missionaries do what they do. They were faithful to their church family. They were faithful to Paul. And they were willing to pick up their trade and move it wherever God would have them to move. You think just as they're establishing business in Corinth, this economic center of Greece, they're like, I think we need to go to Ephesus and move and plant our lives there. It's an amazing thing. God's people are on the move. Don't be afraid. God is with you and you can trust his provision. When God says, these are my people, who are they? We saw God's people are tent makers. And let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself as a tent maker? Unless you're a vocational minister or vocational missionary, you are a tent maker. If you're a Christian, you're a tent maker. And how can you choose to use your vocation for God's glory? Whatever that might be. We're celebrating graduating seniors. We saw them up here this morning. And it's an exciting time. And you just think of all the possibilities of where they could go. 
And it's amazing what God can do through your vocation. Pastor J.D. Greer at Summit Church challenges his graduates this way. He says, do what you do well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. We have mission partners all around the world. And by the time these graduates graduate college, who knows how many international mission partners we have. Those are strategic places. We'll have four or five church plants by that point, by the time these, these, these guys graduate college. Lord willing, those are strategic places where they can use their vocation for God as tent makers. I haven't graduated. I already told you, I haven't graduated in 20 years, right? Well, it was less than that. I graduated seminary, I guess. So, but it's been a long time. I'm done with school. I'm not graduating. But that doesn't mean I can't think strategically about what I'm doing. You guys, thinking strategically about what you're doing. They're, they're, th- this pandemic has, a lot of people are working from home, working remotely, and they're not ever going back. You want to talk about opening the door for using your vocation strategically for somewhere? Hey, God calls you to, to go just do it on a beach house. I guess that's right. But think, where could you use your vocation strategically? Melbourne is a very strategic place. That's why a lot of us are here. There's so many places. Do what you do well. I'm telling you, it is just rare to find people who will just show up and do what they say they're going to do. I, I mean rare. If you say, hey, I was, at, I was at Wagon Wheel Pizza picking up a pizza, and the person picking it up was just talking about this employee that they had that just didn't show up. Like, they were supposed to pull weeds. They did it for 15 minutes and sat on a bucket for the next hour. It was just like, yeah, this is kind of boring. You know, I mean, I'm like, so <laughs> to stand out in this guy's eyes was just to pull weeds, and that made them top percentage employee. Do what you're doing well for the glory of God, and do it somewhere strategic. Let ministry be the most shaping factor in determining what and where you pursue your career. And parents, this is for you. Let ministry be the most shaping factor in determining what and where you point your kids to pursue their lives. Make that primary. Whatever they do. When God says, these are my people, who are they? God's people are bold. They're bold. They're not, they're not brash and arrogant, but they're bold. They're willing to take steps. The Macedonian church was bold in generosity. They generously gave to Paul, which emboldened him to do ministry. Maybe someone in here needs to take a bold, generous step to empower someone to do ministry. Paul stood up in a city that affirmed disgusting things and boldly proclaimed the truth. Is there a stand that you need to take for the sake of the gospel? Is there a neighbor or family member that you need to invite to church and you have no idea how they're going to respond? Is there a coworker that you need to have? You've been talking about the weather for long enough and it's time for you to talk about something that matters. It's going to be bold. And the gospel is what emboldens you to do things. When God says, these are my people, who are they? God's people trust him. They trust him. It's hard to do, be a tent maker for Jesus. It's hard to be bold for Jesus if you don't know Jesus. If you haven't trusted him in the first place. The Bible tells us that every single one of us in this room have sinned. We've all chosen the way we want to live life instead of the way God wants to live life. And because of that, Jesus came. He lived life perfectly without sin, without any rebellion. And he died in our place so that we don't have to face the punishment for our own actions. And if we turn from our sin and put our faith in him, we can have a brand new life, a brand new hope that I talked about at the very beginning of service with Mark. 
Every one of us can know Jesus. We can know him today. And it just starts with God saying, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. And I want to follow you. And that's what it is. And your whole life trajectory is changed in an instant. How awesome is that? No matter, no matter where it came from. No matter where you came from. What an amazing thing. And that's trustworthy. We can trust him today. When God says, these are my people, who are they? God's people are on the move. And I just want to ask you a question. Where are you willing to follow Christ? Where are you willing to follow Christ? Um, I think in the back of our mind, we all might say, hey, God, I'll follow you anywhere, but I really don't want to go blank, right? Um, and I know I've said that, right? Um, I've tried to bar- bargain with God about where we would go and all these things, but do we trust God enough to just give that up to him? Take everything that you've made me, with my vocation, my retirement, my family, and just use me where you want to. I'll be like Priscilla and Aquila. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll pick up everything and I'll move. We're going to ask you at the end of the year. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be planting churches. That's, that's why I'm here. And we're going to be asking people who love this place, I mean, love this place to pick up and move for the sake of the gospel. Maybe God's stirring in your heart now that that's something that you might need to do in the future. Maybe it's a couple years from now. I don't know. But start praying today. Where are you willing to go for the gospel of Christ? As Pastor David comes up, we're going to lead an invitation song. And what I want to do is invite you to pray. This is an invitation of surrender. This is an invitation of God. David Platt says, um, put your, your life is like a blank check. Let God fill everything out. J.D. Greer says, put your yes on the table, let God put it on the map. Just say, God, anywhere. It could be just right where you're at. It could be somewhere else. Wherever that is, I just want to invite us to pray this morning. The altar is open. If you need to pray that prayer and just surrender it right here, don't delay. Do it right here this morning. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to know how you can trust him, I'll be standing up front and we'd love to see you come up. Let's stand and sing.